All right, we're one minute past the hour. Thanks for joining, everybody. Good to see you. As we discussed last week, there are two remaining study sessions in uh, John's Gospel here. So it will be this week and next week. That is March 4th. And then we will take a break from Bible study. And as I mentioned last week, and Robert as well, uh, we will return with uh, with a, a season two of Bible study at a, a yet-to-be-determined date. So a couple things about that, just in case anybody missed last week. If you have um, strong opinions about what scripture you'd like to see for season two of Bible study, uh, please head on over to the Bible study page of the website and send your thoughts to Robert. And when Robert and I decide what we want to do for the next round, uh, we we if there are str- uh, strong thoughts from the audience, we want to consider those in our decision making. And then uh, last week, we also didn't mention when Bible study would be returning. Uh, rather than setting a firm date, it, it will be in the summer probably target around June or so on the Robert's nodding his head. So that tells me that's correct. Um, it could be anywhere from June, July, somewhere in there, but rather than setting a firm date, which is difficult for us right now, given some constraints, what I've decided to do to make sure everyone's on the same page, I've set up a, 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 a email list. You can sign up to be on the email list on the Bible study page of the website. And if you just submit your email address there, uh, I will send out email notifications later into the summer when we're ready to get started again, and uh, and we'll handle it that way. That way, you don't have to see a particular episode of the stream or look for a particular spot on my website to find it. If you're interested in Bible study season two and you want to know when it's going to start, just head on over to the Bible study page of the website, enter your email address, and I will send you an email when we get closer to the summer and we're ready to get started. And just so you're aware. Uh, that is all private. I'm not going to share your email address with any third party or anything like that. So don't worry about that. Uh, I think that covers all of it. Did I miss anything, Robert? No, I think that's it. Okay. Now that I've eaten up a couple minutes of your time, Robert, of course, has another lesson for us. The penultimate uh, lesson in John's gospel. Yep. We are almost there. And as far as an announcement, the suggestions I have so far are Acts, Exodus, and Genesis. And uh, I'm just throwing that out there in case, you know, you have strong feelings, uh, and I'm talking to anyone in, in, you know, who's participating in this. If anyone has strong feelings about one of those or maybe against one of those, whatever, you know, feel free to email me. Um, you can do it through the website. Okay. With that said, let's start with the scripture reading. It's going to be in two separate recordings, so there will be a kind of a break between the two chapters. Here we go. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the wounds from the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now this is how he did so. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael, who was from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples of his were together. Simon Peter told them, I am going fishing. We will go with you, they replied. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already very early morning, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? They replied, no. He told them, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they threw the net and were not able to pull it in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, tucked in his outer garment, for he had nothing on underneath it, and plunged into the sea. Meanwhile, the other disciples came with the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards. Okay, and that's where we will stop today. Um, the few verses that are left, of course, we will cover next time. Um, okay, so the, the text begins today with the last little bit of chapter 20, which is really a key passage in the gospel because it is the climactic ending to to the gospel. Um, and you may be thinking, well, I mean, then what about chapter 21? We will get to that in just a minute. But the reading opens up with Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, which if you have ever been around a church setting in which Thomas was mentioned, then I'm sure you heard the expression doubting Thomas, right? That's how he is known because he is the Apostle who refused to believe unless he saw Jesus and essentially was able to touch Jesus to confirm that, you know, Jesus was, was, was real. He really was alive. So um, Thomas says, you know, I will not believe unless uh, I can see the wounds from the nails in his hands and on his side and, and so forth. Now, I think that calling Thomas, doubting Thomas is a little bit unfair, really for, for a couple of reasons. But number one, we need to put the scene in context of what we have seen of Thomas throughout the rest of the gospel, right? Particularly in chapter six. This is when Lazarus has died and Jesus has decided to go to Judea to, uh, to bring him back to life. And the, he's having a discussion with the apostles and the apostles say, don't go, don't go. You know, that's where they were trying to kill you. It, pretty much saying, if you go back there, they're going to kill you. And Jesus says, I'm going to go. And then Thomas responds, and this is a quote, everything else was paraphrased. But he says, let us go too, so that we may die with him. Okay. So Thomas is not, is not a coward. He's not, it's not that he's not committed to the cause. But I think what this shows is when Jesus dies, whatever idea Thomas had of Jesus is just crushed. It is just devastated. And so he, I mean, he's just not inclined to believe again, right? He's not inclined to get his hopes up again. His, his whole worldview just came tumbling down. 
And so he's saying, no, I'm not doing this again. I'm not trusting again. And, and it really makes sense of his reaction. Not that Thomas, I guess, cares what we call him now 2,000 years later, but I just don't think that that really is a fair characterization. The other reason that we really shouldn't be calling him doubting Thomas is that really all the apostles, or many of the apostles, doubt it. If you look at other verses in the other Gospels, that, you know, that comes through, and I will get to those verses here in a little bit. Um, but um, the, this this whole idea of Thomas refusing to have faith unless he sees a, a, a miracle, essentially, unless he sees the miracle himself, it is a running theme in the gospel, right? There's many who refuse to believe unless there's signs, but then even with signs, many refuse to believe anyways. So that kind of sets the context. And Jesus appears to Thomas, right? All the disciples are gathered together and Jesus appears in the midst of them. We get the same detail as we did last time earlier in chapter 20, that the doors were locked and Jesus still just appears. This, you know, we discussed this last time, but I'll repeat it rather briefly. This hints to the fact that the resurrected body, the glorified body of Jesus has some heavenly properties, right? He doesn't seem to be constrained by just um, physical stuff as he used to be. Well, so um, Jesus Jesus appears. And I would say the shocking thing about this scene is that Jesus could have chastised Thomas, right? Jesus could have said, I cannot believe you refuse to believe. I cannot believe that you didn't believe the other apostles. But none of that really happens. What happens is that Jesus appears and says, go ahead, put your finger here and examine my hands, you know, extend your hand and put it into my side. Like, this is the proof you want it. Here you go. And um, of course, Thomas, you know, believes and in, in, in he, he has kind of this, this huge aha moment, which is really key what he says at, at, at that moment. But before I get to that, um, we see again what, what I discussed last time, that, that Jesus is Jesus, right? Jesus in the flesh. This is not a ghost. This is not an apparition of a God. What I mean by that is what the Greeks would have understood, like Zeus creating an illusion of himself or projecting himself or, or taking some temporary human form and dwelling among men. No, this is the same Jesus that died, was come back to life in his body, although this body has been uh, glorified. It is, you know, it is different in that regard. Um, and, and so, again, Thomas, he, he has this aha moment, and he makes what, what, you know, normally we would call a Christological confession. So Thomas kind of summarizes the, the, the view about Christ that Christians hold, right? Because he says, uh, when he comes, he comes to believe, he says, my Lord and my God. Now, at first glance, those words don't, they don't jump out of the page, right? You're thinking, okay, so he says, you are God. Okay, big deal. But this really, really is huge. And we need to spend a minute understanding this phrase. The, the word Lord in English, it is translating the Greek word curious. And curious is translating the name of God in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh, okay? And then 
in that connection, by the way, is explicit in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sorry, I'm I'm not making myself very clear. Let me let me restart just this point. At the time of Jesus, there was a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so we know how the Jews were translating the Hebrew of the Old Testament into Greek. And this is just like key data for us uh, to understand to understand the New Testament. Oftentimes we will we will go back to the Septuagint and we realize, okay, that's what the Jews meant by this Greek word. Okay. So the word that we see as Lord in English is the, the Greek word curious, which was translating the name Yahweh. But really that same word, that same Greek word could just mean uh, master or Lord in a more generic sense. Okay, so there could be some ambiguity built into that word curious that we are translating Lord. The same with the word God, right? The, the, word, the Greek word for God is theos. Well, theos in the Septuagint normally would translate the Hebrew word for God, um, which is Elohim. Now, Elohim in itself has some ambiguity. Normally, it is used to refer to God, to the Jewish God. Um, but it, it is a generic word for God or gods. It's actually a plural word. And so Elohim in itself has some ambiguity. Uh, you, From context, you can tell which God is being referred to. Then Theos has its own ambiguity because, right, you could refer to different gods as Theos. That's just a word for God. Um, however, when you use the expression, my Lord and my God, any ambiguity just gets demolished. It disappears. And I'm not overstating my case. That expression, the curious and the theos, the my Lord and my God, is how the God of the Old Testament is referred to time after time after time after time. And it is only used for him. There's zero ambiguity in this. So to give you some examples of the Old Testament, like in, in the Psalms, this is Psalm 100 uh, verse 3, it says, acknowledge that the Lord is God, right? That the curious is Theos. Uh, then in Leviticus, for I am the Lord your God, for I am the curious your Theos, right? Um, you see this in Deuteronomy. I am the Lord your God. I am the curious your Theos. And then uh, you see this in First Kings when, when the people, you know, witness something and they kind of throw themselves before God and they say the Lord is the true God. The curious is the true Theos. Okay, so when you see those two words together, it is undoubtedly and unmistakably referring to the Old Testament God, what as Christians we just call God. Um, now, why is this so important? Because up to this point in the gospel, I mean, it's pretty clear, of course, that Jesus is God. We, we see this in verse 1, 1, right? The word was with God and the word was God. So it is literally from verse 1 that, that we see this theme. But here it comes to, to its climactic conclusion when the apostle Thomas realizes this, like in its full kind of glory, in its full meaning. Um, so we, we could say that this closes the, the main theme of the gospel that begins with verse 1, 1, and it closes here with verse 20, is it verse 28? Yeah, verse 20, 28, right? Um, it, let me put it another way. It, if, if somebody believes in the Bible, including the gospel of John, it is impossible to hold that Jesus is not God 
because you you just have to write this verse out of it. Not to mention again one one and one three and so forth. There's a number of other verses you'd have to omit, but this one just makes it explicitly clear. And it and it, it comes at the very end. I mean, again, this is the climactic ending to the story. Jesus is God, and it is the God of the Old Testament, right? The God of the Jews, the the Yahweh, the Great I Am, all those things. Um, so, big you know, big deal, big moment. Um. Well, once uh, Thomas makes that confession, uh, Jesus clarifies one point that I think is important for, for us, right? For the rest of the church. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, the... There's something, there's two things actually to note. Number one, notice this is written like a beatitude. And if, you know, you, you don't have to be a Christian to be familiar with the beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, you know, uh, blessed are those who mourn. It's, it's a it's a huge uh, section of, of Jesus' teaching that is not present in this gospel, it's present in all the other gospels. But in the gospel of John, we see Jesus use that phrasing only twice. I, and you guys may recall, we covered the first time weeks and weeks ago. I don't even remember when we did so. Um, and this is the second time that it happens in this gospel where Jesus says, blessed are, and then, you know, less the category of people. In this case, blessed, blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I think this verse gets misunderstood. I think it is from verses like this that people misdefine faith to mean believe something for which you have no evidence, right? Which, number one, is not a correct definition of faith. And number two is not what this verse is saying, right? This verse is saying you believe without seeing, not believe without evidence. Because put yourself in the shoes of a disciple at that time. No, don't even think of us for a minute. Disciple at that time who did not see the resurrected Jesus. At the end of the day, Jesus did not appear to everyone. He appeared to 500 plus people. Um, we get that from well, a number of other books. I, I quoted those verses last week, actually, if, if you want to go look at those. But okay, so he appeared to 500 plus people, not to every disciple. Well, those other disciples would have to believe the testimonies of those who saw Jesus. But that is evidence, right? The testimony of people. Um, they would also... Uh, have the ministry of Jesus in which Jesus did a number of miracles. That's also some evidence. Um, they would get to see the changing behavior of the apostles who saw Jesus and completely changed their tune, completely changed the way they lived their lives and even the way that they died. So that is some evidence. Um, and then, of course, there's just a general revelation that that points to God. By general revelation, I mean like the things in the world that we can see that point us to God, like morality, for example, um, and sorry, the other piece of evidence that they had was the Old Testament that pointed to a Messiah, to a Christ. It's the same word, just one is uh, Hebrew, the other one is Greek. Um, so it, there is plenty of evidence for, for these people to believe. Um, so this verse should not be misunderstood. I think that that is an important clarification. And something that, that I want to point out that... I don't know. Uh, it's neither here nor there, but sometimes people downplay their role of testimonies. Like, well, I can't just believe because somebody told me so. And 
you know, I don't want to overplay testimony, but at the same time, we have to understand that much of what we believe, actually the majority of things we believe, we believe based on testimony, right? Like I give some silly examples on my blog. I'm like, I believe Mongolia exists. Why? Because somebody told me so. Like I haven't been there. You know, I believe that vitamin C helps with your immune system. Why? Because somebody told me so. I didn't run some experiment. I'm just, somebody told me that and I believe they did. Um, you know, I think the Renaissance happened in the 14 and 1500s. Why? Because somebody told me so. I haven't gone and inspected those documents myself and so forth. I mean, just about everything we believe in life, we believe because somebody told us so. Now, I not everything because there's some, some things I can experience myself. But the, my point is sometimes when it comes to matters of faith, we use a much higher epistemic standard that we don't use in any other setting in life. Um, and that I think that's something that's important to point out. Um, so, uh, like I said, blessed are those uh, who believe without seeing, without having to be right there, seeing the resurrected Jesus. Um, and why would that be? It just shows a humility of spirit, right? I think that that, at the end of the day, is the point uh, that Jesus was making with that beatitude. Well, then we move on to the end of chapter 20, when John says, actually, there were many more miracles that I did not record. And it might seem odd at first, right? Like you're just going to casually drop that line and be like, yeah, there were like more amazing stuff, but I, I didn't record it. And some thoughts, some thoughts come to mind. Number one, there are several ancient books that end in similar praise for the hero of the story. So you may be thinking, well, this is just like a thing people said at the time when they finished, you know, the story of whoever they were writing. But we actually see this throughout the gospel. We see uh, the gospel will say, you know, Jesus did a bunch of miracles and it doesn't describe them. It just throws it out there. An example would be in chapter 11, um, when he, this actually is coming from the Pharisees, from the opponents of Jesus saying, hey, he's doing uh, many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on this way, everyone will believe. Okay, But we're not told what those miraculous signs are. There's, there's just plenty of them. So this doesn't seem to be just a line that John is saying for the sake of it. It, it actually seems quite factual. Of course, the other data point is that the other gospels record miracles that John doesn't. So we know that there's at least some other ones that didn't make it into the book. Okay, so this is not a throwaway line, which immediately begs the question, then why include the miracles that John did include? Why these miracles and not other ones? Was there some logic to what he was writing? And the answer is, yes, he says, I have written these miracles down so that you may believe. Actually, let me, before I move on to that point, let me add one more thing. Um, there's a very practical reason why John could not record every miracle, which is he was probably writing all this on a scroll. And a scroll only has so much room in it. You can only write so much stuff. Now, if you're thinking as well, then just grab a second scroll. That presents large challenges, actually. First, then it's much less likely, and I mean significantly less likely, that the book 
would stay intact, that the two scrolls would stay together. It's very easy for, you know, the scrolls to get separated and now you got, you have an incomplete book. But not only that, the book is meant to be read, right? Like John obviously is writing this for Christians to read all over the place. Well, if you're using two scrolls, now it's more expensive to copy and it takes a lot longer. So it really would diminish the impact of the message if John decided to use another scroll. So that he's only got so much room to work with. And he says, again, I have written the, the miracles I did put in there. And he doesn't call them that in this section. He'll call them signs. These are signs so that you may believe uh, that Jesus is the Christ, you know, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there we go. There's That's the theme of the book. That's why John wrote it the way he did. That's why he included the information he did and not other information. That's the limiting principle, so to speak. And, and I think we've seen that, right? Hopefully throughout this Bible study, we have seen that very thing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, the, the Son of God stuff, I mean, even today I started by explaining that, right? The Christological confession made by Thomas. And then this idea of having life in his name, the, you know, the, the idea that Jesus came to reconcile us with God and that the way he does that is he met all the requirements, he paid all the penalties, and that we, in a sense, just get to claim that. We get to say, well, he did it for us. And, and then, you know, we do that simply by, essentially by, by having faith that, that he did, in fact, he, that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was that his words are true. And so he did, in fact, accomplish what he said um, he, he had accomplished. Um, there is, this is such a detail. I almost hate to bring it up because I feel like it's going to take away from the main point of this, but but I've, I've tried to be fair the whole way through the gospel. Um, if you look at the verb tense in that statement when he says that you may believe such and such and such and such, in the manuscripts, we have slight variations. In some manuscripts, you um, you get the aorist subject subjunctive tense, and in some manuscripts, you get the present subject subjunctive tense. Sorry, I'm having trouble speaking today. Um, one sounds more like the book was written so that new people may come to believe, may come to faith. The other verb tense makes it sound more like. John is trying to encourage those who already believe. For us, in this day and age, 2,000 years later, it just doesn't matter. But just know that there's that slight nuance there, uh, whether John was thinking of people who were already believers or people who were, you know, uh, possibly becoming believers. But again, neither here nor there. Okay, so that's chapter 20. Then we go into chapter 21, which opens up with a slight controversy. Um, if, especially in, uh, I feel like decades past, I don't know that this is so prevalent today, but there are scholars who say that chapter 21 was a later edition. Now, why would scholars say this? There's really two arguments. Um, one at this point has been quote unquote debunked. Uh, <laughs> and I feel comfortable saying that because I don't, I don't know of anybody who believes this anymore. The second argument is a little stronger. And so, but, but I'll go through both of them anyways. The first argument is that there are stylistic reasons why chapter 21 seems to be illegitimate. 
And by illegitimate, I mean added later, probably not written by John. Um, the one, the chapter is written as a literary unit, meaning you could like cut it out of the gospel and it would make sense just on its own. Um, and the other reason is that there are some words in chapter 21 that are not found in the rest of the gospel. Now, I'll tell you why this is silly. Uh, number one, the fact that it's a literary unit, it, it's just not very persuasive. There's a lot of chapters you could just cut out and they would work on their own. Um, so that just that that claim in a sense proves too much. And not just for a Bible chapter. You could cut out a chapter of the Iliad or something and it would work on its own. And two, this idea of there are words in chapter 21 not found elsewhere in the gospel. Well, it's because chapter 21 is the only chapter that talks about fishing, right? So the special words are about fishing. It's it's really a, a, a ridiculous argument. Moreover, there are some very uh, kind of John-style writing in the chapter, like um, the variation of synonyms in verses 15, 16, and 17, the double amen in verse 18, the phrase, quote, this he said, indicating, close quote, in verse 19, and the name Sea of Tiberias, the only guy who calls the, the lake, the Sea of Tiberias, in, in the Gospels is John right? So we have distinct kind of John's uh, language in this chapter. So actually, stylistically, um, the evidence goes the other way. It really makes it look like chapter 21 is legitimate. Okay, so why is anybody still holding on to this idea that chapter 21 was added later? The argument is that chapter 21 is anticlimactic. Right, that the gospel finds it cl its climax in chapter twenty, and then chapter twenty-one is very anticlimactic, so it just doesn't make sense to finish a book that way. Now, if the argument is going to take off the ground, right, for this argument to be persuasive, the the first thing that the the person would have to show is that ancient authors did not finish books with anticlimactic chapters, right? If if, if somebody you know, could pretty much go through most popular books in in the ancient world and go, look, look, like they always just finish in that climatic statement and then they're done. Okay, this this argument would have some legs to it, but but it's actually quite the opposite. If you look at the most popular book in the Greek East, it was the Iliad. Okay, in the Iliad, actually ends just like John where you have book 24, the ending of the book, um, that is very anticlimactic. It, and so in the most popular book at the time, actually it followed the same structure that John uses. So it's just not something unusual. It's not something that we should not expect. Um, and finally, actually, the other reason why we're not surprised by an anticlimactic ending is that um, we can tell actually that all four gospel writers, and this was not just something they did, but other people did at the time, they tried to use the full scroll that they were writing on, right? So the thing is, you don't want to waste any part of it. Um, so if you get to the end of the scroll, like you've written, or sorry, if you get to the end of your story that you want to tell, and you have a little bit of scroll left, well, go ahead and add some information. Don't 
Don't waste it. That sounds silly to us now because we write on different media. But if you're writing on a scroll, that makes perfect sense. So this seems to be almost like an addendum, but because John had room left and he went ahead and, and added some material. Now, this material makes perfect sense with the rest of the gospel. Just the other reason that this argument just doesn't really work. Um, last thing I'll say on this is there are other ancient writings where we can tell that a chapter was added at the end. And why can we tell that? Because that chapter, well, first of all, may have stylistic issues. But number two, it normally goes against the rest of the narrative. Like it will literally uh, <laughs> make the opposite claims to what the author had made throughout the narrative. We don't see any of that going on here. So all this to say, I think that there's no good reason to think that chapter 21 is not legitimate. Uh, and mind you, I'm the kind of guy who grants that the longer ending of Mark is probably not legitimate. Like this wouldn't just offend me, but there's just really uh, no good scholarship behind that argument. There you go. Um, okay. So as we get into chapter 21, we have this scene when there's, you know, there's fishing going on. This is the first time that John brings it up. This whole fishing thing is much more prominent in the other Gospels. Uh, but we know from the other Gospels that several of the apostles are fishermen. We're, in other words, we're not surprised by this scene. And they're fishing at night. Fishing at night was typical at the time. We have some sources that suggest that fishing at night was better than during the day. Because, first of all, your catch may be better. But then you would be first to the market with your fish. So you would get a jump on your competitors. You would get to sell your fish first. And um, I want to address here a, a common stereotype that people have about the apostles because they were fishermen, right? If you, if you, I don't know, if you've ever been to church and the apostles have come up, I am confident that what you were told is they were just rednecks, right? And I'm using an American word, of course, but that's that's kind of the claim that they want to make. These guys were were ignorant and uneducated and didn't really know anything. They were just a, a bunch of hicks or rednecks, whatever modern word you want to use. Uh, and no offense to rednecks again. I <laughs> I'm I'm just using the stereotype here. Um and that's really not a correct characterization of the apostles. Number one, we know the sense of ZBD. Uh, Zebedee, sorry, um, James and John, they they uh, ran a business, right? They were fishermen, but like their operation was large enough. They had employees. We know we know this from Mark one twenty. So now they were not just like simpletons. And we also know that Peter and Andrew participated in this business some way, shape, or form, you know, they seem to have some kind of business partnership. We know this from Luke 5, verses 9 through 10. Um, so they actually have a lot more going on than than just fishing. But that's really not the only, that's not the only data that, that goes against this characterization. These were Jewish men, right? From a very early point in their lives, since the time they were children, they would learn Hebrew, which was another language. Remember, they spoke Aramaic, so they would learn Hebrew, and they would learn the Old Testament, which required knowing how to read and write. It required also memorizing very large portions of it and knowing how to argue from it, right? That was an important skill that they would learn. So 
you know, when you think of a redneck stereotype, you're not really thinking of a guy that was definitely bilingual, if not trilingual, because they're probably new Greek, and perhaps quadrilingual, because they may have known some Latin as well, a person who could read and write very well, and they could argue similarly to what an attorney would do today. Um, so no, these these people are not, they're not the dumb hicks that, that they get portrayed as. Um, okay, so that's just an important disclaimer there. Um, so, the, okay, they're fishing at night and they don't, um, they, they're not catching anything. Um, and I just have two more points to make here real quick and then I'll open it up for questions and comments and all that. Um, there are some people who say that the fact that the apostles were fishing, it amounted to apostasy, meaning they had given up on Jesus, they had given up on the gospel, and they had just gone back to fishing. That is technically possible, okay? So that accusation could be true. But I think we need to ask ourselves, is it the most reasonable explanation of what's going on here? And it's really not, because the text doesn't say that there is no accusation. Nobody criticizes them for fishing, meaning John doesn't in his writing. It doesn't come up in the dialogue. That That's just, that's just kind of read into the text. It's not in the text. And it, that that reasoning suffers, I think, from a from a terrible flaw, which is the gospel happens in real life, right? In in real life, when people have to eat and they need shelter and they need clothing, and so they need to work, right? They need to pay bills, if we want to call it that way. We know, for example, that the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, he continued making tents so he could make a living. Well, these guys are fishermen. He probably um, you know, they probably kept fishing because they had to make a living. There's just nothing wrong with it. Um, so I would be highly skeptical of this accusation that the apostles had given up on the gospel. It just doesn't make sense of, of the text. Um, well, they don't catch anything. And the interaction that happens is that Jesus comes up and they don't recognize him at first. And he says, hey, throw your net on the right side of the boat. Now, here, I'm going to speculate a little bit, and I want to be very clear that I'm speculating a little bit, but from the best data we have of the time, the, the oar of the boat would be on the right side. So the nets, they would generally be thrown on the left side of the boat. Okay, that's just how they would fish. The, the net goes to the left. Well, so when Jesus says, hey, throw the net on the right, he's probably making um, like a very unusual suggestion. And then they do that. They, they fish the wrong way, if you want to call it that, and they just catch all this fish. Now, I think, first of all, what I'm saying makes sense with all the historical information that we have, but also it makes sense of the narrative, right? Jesus has done this before in the Gospel of John where he will make kind of an unusual suggestion to make a theological point so I really do think that that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, hey, fish this weird way. And then, boom, we get, we get this theological point, which really we're going we're gonna to discuss next time. So, you know, this idea of becoming fishermen. Sorry. Yes. Uh, fishermen of men. Um, the last thing I want to point out today, this is weird to end on. Uh, but when, when this happens, right, they, they catch all, all these fish. 
Peter recognizes Jesus and he jumps out of the boat and runs over to, well, swims first, sorry, and then runs over to Jesus. And we have this weird, I don't know, this like weird verse thrown in there that he uh, tucks in his outer garment. That is to say, he wraps his his outer garment like around his waist um, because he had nothing underneath it. So it can give you this mental image that the apostles were fishing completely naked, which is technically possible again. But the Jews were, they, to put it in modern terms, they were prudes. They were not okay with, with just public nudity. So that's probably not what was going on. That word for nakedness, uh, gymnos, it, it, it oftentimes just referred to having less clothing on or not being fully clothed. Right. So that's probably what we see in this scene. Peter's not fully clothed because he's fishing. And then he puts on uh, his outer garment and swims over to shore, which I think begs a particular question. Why get his outer garment wet? Right. Why not just leave it in the boat? And then when the other guys catch up, they can bring his garment to him. And there's two options. I'll tell you which one I lean towards, but uh, you can consider either. Um, one possibility is when Peter gets to Jesus, he wants to put on his outer garment so he can be fully dressed or appropriately dressed, if we want to think of it like that. The other option is that by putting his outer garment around his waist, this is very similar to when Jesus did that. He, he put a towel around his waist and then proceeded to wash their feet. If you guys remember that scene, it is one of the most impactful scenes in the gospel. So maybe... Um, Peter is kind of demonstrating this attitude of, of being a servant, right? He's ready to serve the Lord Jesus. Um, in my mind, it, it seems more like the first option that Peter wanted to be fully and properly dressed before Jesus, because the text doesn't hint strongly towards that latter option. But there you go. Uh, we're pretty confident Peter was not naked. Not that that matters in any shape or form, uh, except for your mental picture of the scene. <laughs> So with that said, um, Matt, if you want to open it up for questions or comments, we can do that. Sure. As always, if you'd like to pose a question or offer a point for discussion, however you'd like to participate, just write the word question in the chat. And I'll be happy to bring you in. Uh, as far as my notes that I jotted down here, you mentioned um, that you think uh, believing something for which you have no evidence as the definition of faith is a, a bad one or a poor one. And you, you might've said so if, if I missed it, I apologize, but what do you think the better definition for faith is if you had to be as simple as you, as you could? I would say it is relying on something for which you have good reason to believe. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, relying on something for which you have good reason to believe. I, I'm comfortable with that, I think. Okay. I might think about that and come back to it. Okay. Um, and then, oh, let's see, we do have, uh, well, I have one more quick one. So I'll get uh, into questions here in just a moment, guys. Thanks for your patience. Um, just so I'm clear, I'm about 99% sure I'm understanding correctly. But when you say that chapter, when people believe that chapter 21 was added later, hmm. implicitly that means not by John, right? Someone else wrote it. Correct. Is, are there any theories about who that would be? No, it would be a, either a later disciple of John or a later scribe. To my knowledge, in, in, 
you know, maybe there's something here I don't know. There, there is no theory of any particular individual. They're just saying somebody in the chain of custody, you know, as, they, as the gospel got copied down, added that chapter to it. Hmm. Okay. I didn't know if there was a suspect. That's uh, if it's not John, it's like if it, if the style. Well, we talked. You talked about how the style matches his. But if the style was distinct, or they wanted to make stylistic disputes, it's like whose style is it then? Just a guy? I don't know. Yeah, we just. And, and by the way, that's that's why I said like, for example, with the Gospel of Mark, there is a longer ending that it just about everyone who looks into it, even like legit Christians, conservative Christians, they'll grant, yeah, the longer ending of Mark was in all likelihood not written by Mark. Hmm. Uh, and that doesn't bother me one bit. So I'm not approaching this issue of chapter 21 completely close-minded to no, 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 it must for sure be done by John. But like I explained, and I, I don't think I'm overstating my case, there really is no good reason to think that chapter 21 is not uh, part of the gospel as a whole. Alex, if you're ready to go, go ahead and chime in. Um, and uh, thank you guys for doing this podcast or this uh, Bible study and everything. I really love it. Um, my question is, uh, Robert, you mentioned um, that part in, in the gospel where John says that there were other miracles and stuff they didn't talk about um, and how some of them are mentioned in the other gospels. Um, I guess just like generally, I'm just wondering, are there um, other sources like other books in the Bible or maybe outside the Bible that talk about um, parts of like the life, death, and resurrection of of Jesus that we can learn more that we don't learn here? Mm. That is a that great is a question. question. So yeah, you well, are there other books that mention miracles that the four gospels do not mention? Yes, uh, like the Gospel of Peter. Now, those books, I would say, are not reliable. And, and there's, there's several reasons why I'm saying that, but let me give at least two. Number one, those other narratives came later, right? They date much later. The, the four Gospels date very close to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, people fight about when exactly, but we're pretty much talking of a period of 30 to 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? It's they're, they're almost surely before 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed. And none of the gospels mention that they would almost certainly do so. It was such a big event and it, and it really actually validated some of the things Jesus said. So if that had already happened, the gospels would say, yeah, and Jesus was right. You know, boom, destruction of the temple, 70 AD. Um, so we know the gospels are very early. These other so-called gospels come later, uh, second century, third century, fourth century, depending on which one you're talking about. So historically, I don't think they're reliable. But number two, the, the ones that were somewhat early, the, the church rejected immediately. And I think this is something that people don't, don't get sometimes about these other, again, so-called gospels. They, they, they think that all these gospels, like the four that are in the Bible, and then these other ones were all kind of floating around, and then the church just kind of picked these four. No, these four were always, like the church always knew that they were genuine. Uh-oh. I didn't really plan for this. 
we'll see if uh, we can get Robert back, but uh, don't look to me for scriptural lessons. Um, I, I can invite any of you who would like to speak to chime in. If you just have thoughts, we can discuss your thoughts. Of course, I'm not great at answering uh, answering your questions potentially, but uh, while we wait for Robert to come back, uh, Egren, if you want to hop in or Denby, uh, and at least we can you can maybe make your points or we can talk about them and we'll see if we can get Robert back. I'll check my email and see what's going on with him. Uh, oh, wait, now he is back. All right. Okay. I about had a heart attack. I was like, oh man, I'm on the hook to try to <laughs> pretend to know things about this stuff. <laughs> Sorry, but I don't know what happened. I was talking and I could still see you guys and I could hear you. I could actually hear you when you said we lost Robert. And I was like, oh yeah, you totally froze. You were just gone. Oh, so wow. I figured maybe you had a power outage or your internet went down or something like that. No, but I'm back. I can't I'm remember back. exactly where you were when you left off, but you. Oh, I think I know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, if you remember when I jumped in, then go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I was saying is, I, I think sometimes people have a misimpression about those other so called gospels and the four gospels. They think that all of these writings were around kind of at the same time and the church just picked some and rejected the others. This is not the case. The church was never fooled by the other ones. What I mean is, the, the four Gospels we see in the Bible were always accepted, and the ones we don't were always rejected. And this makes sense, because, for example, some of the early Christians were trained by the apostles themselves, so they knew if somebody wrote something or didn't. They knew these people personally. Okay, So all this to say, are there other books that mention Jesus' miracles? Yes, but I don't think they're legitimate. I don't think they're reliable. So I really wouldn't recommend reading them except as a... Like, I don't know, as a historical exercise. All right. Uh, thanks, uh, Alex. And uh, Egrin is up next, I think. Let me make sure I have the order correct. At least I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, Egrin, you're good to go. Uh, hey, so, uh, yeah, go for can it. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, perfect. Um, curious, um, Robert, are you familiar with the Byzantine texts at all? Um, yes. I it's been told it's been said that martin luther uh was actually the one that actually studied the byzantine text uh because there was a, a split between the orthodox church and the catholic church um are you familiar with that yeah so the the byzantine text is what makes the general text or the textus receptus so it is the family of texts of of copies of the bible that um, that we have the most copies of, which is why it gets that name. Essentially, we have more copies of the Byzantine text than of any of the other families of, of uh, biblical texts. And it is the texts that were used by, for, for very famous translations of the Bible, including the King James Version. So there are Christians up to this day who think that the, the kind of the true Bible, so to speak, is recorded in the Byzantine text and not in what's called the. Well, uh oh, I don't think I'm allowed to swear in the biblical setting, but I would be if it was my normal show. You could just say uh, snapples. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume uh, it, Robert is cutting out for everybody else, right? It's not just me. Uh, yeah, uh, he, he is. So, okay. um, 
Well, if well, you had, uh, Egrin, if you had any thoughts on what he was saying, I'll invite you to share them. Otherwise, I assume Robert will probably be able to connect shortly as he was prior. Well, here's my understanding. Like this goes back um, even yet today. Uh, like even majority of Russia is Orthodox Church. Um, uh, for what I understand, there uh, of the Byzantine texts, Martin Luther made his 99 thesis on the Byzantine text where he basically filed a complaint on that. Um, as far as I know on the research uh, side of it, uh, sorry if, if I'm a little bit late on this Bible study, I'm a bit new. Um, there was a disagreement uh, that uh, Mary shouldn't be uh, the one that you pray to. It should be prayed to uh, God directly. You know, see how Jesus is the high priest uh, in the book of Hebrew that uh, Jesus is forever the high priest that you part, uh, prayed to him to pray to God in that sense. And that uh, on the idea of faith, um, I would say it's the acknowledgement of who God is and what he has done. All right. Well, uh, we got Robert Even though back. that there's even though sorry, that there's like go ahead and finish your thought. Sorry, uh, uh, just last final thought. I would yeah, say sure. uh, faith is n believing without any miracles in front of you, because back in the Old Testament, there were miracles on a daily basis for them, and yet they still complain. So I would say for today, it's faith that comes from just really uh, holding on, even though that you don't see anything. Sure. All right. Thanks for the thoughts and thanks for joining. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm having, a, there's a, there's a infant emergency or toddler emergency in the next room. So everything's going haywire for me, but Robert, I assume uh, you're back and you're good. Yeah. I connected okay. now to my, I I'm hotspotting off my phone because it has to be my internet provider. Yeah, I don't maybe. know what else could be doing that. Yeah, this connection seems fine. So sorry about the interruptions, guys. But Egrin uh, was offering some more thoughts uh, after after you had answered his question. So thanks, Egrin. Appreciate it. Um, let's see. Denby would like to comment. And I think we might have one more question after that. Yeah. So Denby, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Uh, actually, um, I'd be interested in um, in hearing uh, from what Dan, you know, your, your response to Daniel's uh, question before I say anything. Sure, so I, did I, see, you know, I did see Daniel's question. Um, Daniel wrote, uh, he, he doesn't have a mic, so he, he offers it by text. Uh, Matt, at this point, what do you believe uh, of Jesus to be true? Well, this is interesting because it relates to what we're talking about with faith and belief and all of this. Uh, I can't sit here and, and tell you that I have 100% certainty that everything we've studied here is a matter of historical fact or something like that. Uh, but I, I have enough belief to have interest in hearing the story and not just this version of it, but hearing more about it and discussing it. Um, so I'm not, uh, I don't know that my perspective has changed drastically, but obviously there's something that intrigues me that brings me back to this. Uh, can I explain that entirely? Not really. I just, I find, 
I find a lot of cultural relevance to it. I find some fellowship in it. I find community in it. And I think of many of the things I've come to learn about faith, uh, it's not necessarily that you're 100% convinced or confident all of the time. It's a journey in discovering your own. Uh, well, it's just it's a it's a journey in in interacting with this material yourself, and and I know that might be unsatisfying. I I, <laughs> I gather sometimes there's like a hunger for me to have this this moment, this this great uh, aha, and and that I will you know that 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 I will. Uh, declare myself or something like that. And, and I, if that happens, that's great. Um, but I guess the most satisfying thing I can say or what I hope would would satisfy those who would like to continue to to push me a little bit or nudge me is that there's a reason I show up, isn't there? I, I, I Why is that? I don't have a great answer for you, but I do. So there must be something to it. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Did you have uh, something else you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, Denby. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, yeah. Well, just uh, um, a, a little bit about um, faith, uh, both the word and the the kind of the concept. But one thing is, um, we have two uh, words that may help you get a little more of a handle on it. One is the one you just used, confidence. Hmm. That means literally with trust. That's what fides faith means, trust. Uh, you know, so. Like, do you trust the information you're getting? You know, do you trust the source? You know, and uh, the other is um, fidelity. You know, we get that from faith, so truthfulness, you know. So, uh, you know, to to have faith is to trust in something, basically. Like, at its most essential level. Um and on that point, I think that's an interesting thing about the Bible, which is different from most other religious stories. Like, uh, from my knowledge, and I'm not, not saying I'm an expert by any means, but uh, most other religious stories are kind of stories about a hero. And, you know, they have every virtue and no fault, or a lot of the time they don't anyway. Um, Greeks aren't always like that. But like, um, even the Bible... Um, the, the Jews are a bunch of whiny bitches a lot of the time. And the Bible tells us that. It tells us, like, God, you know, why is she giving us everything we want? You know, it's like Moses parts the Red Sea. And then they're like, nice going, Moses. You know, when's the, when's the next miracle going to happen? You know, like, this is just so unfair. Like, why can't we go back to Egypt and be slaves again? You know, that was so much easier. It was like, an amazing miracle, hmm. you know, all these signs that, you know, God is taking them out of slavery. And then they're, they make a golden calf, you know, to go back to being good little Egyptian slaves, you know, and then, you know, the, the, the disciples, all these times when Jesus tells them something and they don't get it. And the gospels tell us they didn't get it, you know, and then there's that, that part where uh, from Luke, where, you know, the women go to tell the disciples and they're like, oh, you crazy, hysterical women. It doesn't tell us that they doesn't make them look good. It doesn't say that they believe the women right away, which is like, you know, if they wanted to, you know, uh, make themselves look good, that's what they do. But they didn't. It's a, it's often called um, the evidence of embarrassment. You know, that it's it's not telling us good things about them all the way through. Like the Bible doesn't make the Jews look good. 
It doesn't even make the profits look good a lot of the time. There are a lot of profits where part of the story is they're saying, God, I don't want to. I don't want to do this. Like this is, this seems pretty hard and uncomfortable and not very much fun. And I was like, well, hey, you know, if you want the people to suffer, then go ahead and don't do it. But I'm telling you that if you don't, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, I think, unique to the Jewish and Christian tradition. There are stories which say that, uh, you know, they're about fallible people. Like Samson mm -hmm. was not a, a, a very nice person at all. Spends his time going to see prostitutes. I want to I, I want to make sure that we leave enough time for a couple of our calls. Sure. So I might anyway, have to cut you off a little bit. I hate to be sorry. I hate to do that, but we did have one more, and I want to make sure we have time. Pardon me for getting all warmed uh, no, up. No, no, that's totally fine. Did you have one quick thought uh, to finish up before we um move along? Yeah, just just um just that the there's um there's all kinds of things that when you think about it, that it's 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 it. it doesn't make any sense that they're there if they weren't there because they were because they were true because they're not complimentary they're not flattering they don't uh you know they don't like they don't pr present like the 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 smoothest case you could make and like just about thomas i think that's actually a great point for those of us who are uh you know on a journey of faith ourselves, it's it, it's it's good to see someone who said, like, look, I I'm a little kind of burnt out. I need I need something more right sure. now, you know. And so right. I think that's that's something good for all of us. Anyway, sorry to, so, no, thank you for the yeah, thoughts. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, appreciate the uh, appreciate the um, the thoughts there. Uh, thank you, Denby. We do have two additional requests to speak. I know we're a little over time, Robert. I don't know if you um, are on any kind of time crunch. I, I do for sure want to get Gilgamesh's chance because I accidentally skipped over him and he was the, he was early to request. So my apology to Gilgamesh, I, I didn't scroll up far enough to see it. Um, but do you have time, Robert for, for, Oh yeah, I have. Time. Okay. Uh, and then I also see um, Brian would like to speak too. So uh, I, I have time to accommodate those. Uh, if you do, Robert. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Gilgamesh, uh, go ahead. Sorry about the, the weight. It's fine. Um, well, the term redneck came from farmers that worked in the field one day. Their back of their neck would be red. So that's where the it's not a dumb person. It's a farmer who worked the field every day. And this isn't just like our fields. It's all over the world. When you look at farmers, their necks all got red from beyond that sun all day. So that's where that term comes from. It was People who thought they were smarter than everybody else, the city people that called anybody who did, lived as a farmer an idiot. So I consider it a compliment if you're called a redneck because you're you're the person who's putting food, you know, in the on people's table. So it's a compliment. Also, the scroll, the reason they wrote it in scrolls because they could roll them up and um, put them away and carry them easily instead of a book. And that's why the Japanese, the Chinese, and um, people in the Middle East write everything from right to left because that's how the, they wrote it on the scrolls. So when you look at the Arab language, they write opposite of us. It's like we write from left to right. They write from right to left because of, of the years of writing on scrolls. And that's how they read everything from the right to left. So that's why the Japanese write everything. 
that way they start with the last name and then the first name, you know, like they, you know, when they write, they write everything backwards um, because scrolls were written that way. The Chinese do it too, but they've learned to reverse it for most things. But when it comes to like names and stuff, they still write it. Like that's why their mangas are all written from right to left instead of left to right. Um, but yeah, I was just like, I always found that puzzling when people go, oh, redneck's a terrible term. No, it's literally the farmers who work the field every day and uh, make sure that you have food to feed your family. If you worked in the field all day, your neck would be red too. So um, that's right. that was my big thing that, you know, I don't consider it an insult. I consider it a compliment because, you know, and people should consider it a compliment be called a redneck. All right. Yeah. Fair point. Did yep. you have any thoughts on that, Robert? Uh, yeah, just real quick. Um, I point this out in the blog. Like, I, I was only using kind of the stereotype of the redneck to make the point that I was making. Yeah. But I actually fully agree with Gilgamesh that uh, those are the smartest people I've ever met. And if um, if there's ever a crisis, um, I want to be around mm-hmm. people. Uh, yeah. Know how to make it. And also, real quick, the at the time the Gospels were written, regular books, what we call a book, did not exist. That form, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's called the Codex, or the early form of the book was called the Codex. And um, the speculation is that actually Christians invented the Codex so that they could put all their religions, religious writings in one book, in what we call a book. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that, Gilgamesh. Oh, no problem. Have a good night. Thanks, Gilgamesh. Oh, and one correction, you weren't here last week, remember? It was the week before. You were off last week because you had a family thing to take No, care we were here of. last week. Really? We were here last week. It was the week prior to that. Oh. Or wait. No, it was last no, week you were no, off. No, we were here last week. Really? Yeah. I, yeah. It no, because you said you were, you were off last week because you... Because I remember the week before you said, I'm taking the next week off because you didn't have... I, I may um, have misstated, but we did have the study last week, yeah. Really? Because you didn't yeah. have um, Wednesday call-in show. You said, we're not doing Wednesday because right. I have a family thing to take care of. I right, but I you said that the, call in, the Bible study was off last week. I thought that's what you said. No, it's uh, we oh, did. Okay. Maybe oh, I, okay. I, I, I might have misstated, but yeah, we did, we did the study last week. Okay, I missed um, it But then. If, if you'd like to listen back, of course, it is on the... Okay. Uh, on the Bible study page of the website, the recording. So, okay. Thanks, Gil, well, thank and have thanks for your patience as well. And uh-huh. um, that's a good opportunity for me to remind everyone uh, as we wind down this study. But of course, when we get into the next one, in the event that I miss uh, your request to speak, that's not because I'm trying to ignore anybody or something. So I appreciate the uh, the reminder in the chat that I missed uh, Gilgamesh because I didn't. I just didn't scroll up high enough. So if that happens again in the future, don't be shy about. Uh, being the squeaky wheel requesting some some grease and i will take care of that um brian at least i think it's brian right um if you if you want to get uh, last word go ahead or mr b Irvin, i believe that's brian isn't it yeah but maybe he's uh, shy or oh no now he's here i got a new computer and i couldn't uh. find the the mute button i apologize okay i just have two quick points um yeah. They might they may be a little redundant at this point, but I'll try to keep it quick given the, the time. Um, when the Bible uses the term faith, it, it it means the same thing we mean when we use it in, in common speech. If I say, Matt, I have faith in you, I'm not saying I believe you exist despite there being no evidence for you. It, it's not an epistemology. 
it's not a way of knowing things predominantly. It's it's in a relate it's a relationship orientation, and that's that's all the Bible means when it uses that that term. Um, in fact, it, the the writers of the Bible expect us to believe on the basis of evidence. The resurrection is itself the evidence that informs our faith. Along those same lines, and adding to Matt's, uh, I mean uh, Robert's discussion about the Gospels earlier, there's a there's a there's a book by a scholar named Richard Bauckham called Jesus and the Eye Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He makes a very good case that uh, that the content that we find in the Gospels it was around in the disciples themselves, like they were traveling throughout the the uh, Roman Empire as a, itinerant preachers, delivering this content in the form of oral testimony. So when, when they did write it down and when it was circulated in the churches, this was content they already had in oral form. And so there, there wasn't really, you hear people like Bart Ehrman describe the gospels as anonymous, which is technically true in the sense that they didn't necessarily sign their names to them, but they weren't anonymous to their original audiences. Like this was all, this is all stuff they already had. It was just committed to writing and a lot of, and it was kind of redundant to that generation since they had memorized it. And once, like, once you read Bauckham's arguments, this is all kind of obvious when you read the New Testament, like when you read Paul's letters and he makes kind of off the cuff references to the Corinthians knowing Peter's travel habits and, and mentions running across Peter and James um, when, in the, the letter to the Galatians. So you, you kind of can't unsee it once you're aware of that reality. And, and the, the gospels kind of, they kind of come to life. You, you get the sense that you're, you're kind of getting a glimpse into a window of a, of a community that's already up and running where this is all already familiar. But uh, anyway, I want to attempt to sum up the arguments here, but that's, that's all I had. Thanks for. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for hearing me out. Appreciate it. Okay. I think that is the last of the requests to speak. So at least I'm <laughs> now that I'm self-conscious about it, I'm doubling back to make sure I didn't miss anybody else, but it looks like we're good. Um, did you have anything else you want to say before we're finished up, Robert? No, I, I apologize for my internet issues. That had never happened to me. So, you know, I apologize for that, but thank you all for the questions. It's not a bad run for, you know, three quarters of a year or so into it and not having a connection issue till now. So that's not so bad. Uh, Real quick, before we're finished up, I just want to make sure that everybody who maybe uh, came in a little bit late is clear on how the Bible study is going to finish up and how it will continue in the future. So next week's study, March 4th, will be the final study of John's gospel. And then Bible study will be on a break, uh, a break for a few months. It is coming back with a new piece of scripture. And that will be sometime in the summer. We're thinking target day around uh, June, but we're not uh, ready to announce the date specifically. So a couple things. If you would like to receive a notification about when that date will be as we get closer to it, I've set up a, an email list on the Bible study page of my website. You can submit your email address there. And when we're ready to announce the start date for the next round of Bible study, I will email you and make sure you have that information. Secondly, what we're going to study has yet to be determined as well. So if you have requests for what piece of scripture you would like to uh, study, when we resume, you can uh, use the uh, contact Robert form on the Bible study page, send your thoughts to Robert. And when Robert and I decide what we're going to study next, we are considering uh, if there's a significant demand from those who participated in this first round, if there's something they really want to see, we'll, we'll take that into consideration. Um, 
So those are, those are how to keep up with how Bible study will continue and how to influence maybe what that Bible study will be. I think I covered it all. Did I forget anything, Robert? No, that was it. Great. Well, we will see you next week for the finale of John's Gospel. We hope to see you then. Uh, thanks for participating tonight. Appreciate it.